You know, every, every time we sing that song, I just get this picture of heaven with multitudes of people, angels, every being that ever existed, standing around the throne, praising and worshiping God for all eternity. And that's not going to be boring, folks. That's going to be thrilling and exciting, and it's going to send chills down our spines because God is so great and powerful. We love him. Thank you for loving him back. So, God, we praise you and honor you and worship you. Just hear our hearts. Pour through me the gift of preaching today and tune our hearts and ears to hear you. And let us be different today because of what you do in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. So, um, we love our heroes, don't we? Whether they be... um, Superheroes, you know, Wonder Woman, Batman, Robin, all of that kind of thing. Whether there be national heroes, veterans who've sacrificed so much for our country. Local heroes, those first responders, police officers, firefighters, that sort of thing. We, we honor them and, and acknowledge them and, and just are in awe of the sacrifices they make. We even, we even love our sports heroes, right? Um, we love it when, when our team goes for it on fourth and long. We love it when our defense blitzes the quarterback. We, we get fired up. We get excited by, by our heroes because we're, we're so thrilled and enamored by them. We love to watch uh, skydivers and mountain climbers and cliff divers and, and all of that just because it, it pumps our adrenaline. We love, to, we love to watch that at least. Not too many of us will ever live that kind of life, be on the cutting edge like that, experience all of that. Maybe maybe weekend warriors might do a little bit of that, Um, but too often we just love to sit and watch other people live boldly and victoriously. Uh, Bud Wilkinson, a former OU football coach, once defined football this way. He said, football is 22 men on the field, desperately in need of a rest, and 50,000 fans in the stand, desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> and that's so true. We love watching others do that. And in fact, we, it's, it's kind of embedded into our culture to, to play it safe, to be careful, to not risk too much. We have a lot of sayings that kind of reiterate that. And, and so as I, as I start this phrase, you, I bet you'll be able to finish it. Just speak out and finish that if you, if you can. I'm sure you will. Um, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. If something can go wrong, it probably will. It will. Everything that goes up, you know, let's come down. Look before you and keep both feet on the, don't count your chickens. See, you know that stuff. All of those are designed to help us to be careful, to be cautious, to be wary, to even be afraid. I mean, we've kind of bought into it, right? Um, We send our kids out with helmets and elbow pads and and knee pads and wrapped in bubble wrap just to ride a bike nowadays, you know, because we want them to be safe because there's some legitimate things to be worried about in this world. There's some things to be afraid of occasionally. Louis Armstrong loves to tell the story. You remember him? He was a famous jazz musician in the days gone by. He loved to tell the story about 
his childhood. He grew up very uh, poverty-stricken, literally in the, the backwater bayous of Louisiana in a shack, shack with no running water, no electricity. And his chore every day was every morning, every evening, was to take the old wooden bucket and go down to the bayou, down to the pond, and get some water and bring it back up to the house. Well, one evening he's doing that, and as he's dipping the bucket in the water, an alligator surfaces and just scares the living bejesus out of him, you know? And he takes off running and screaming back to the shack. And um, his Aunt Hattie Mae steps out of the shack and says, what, what's going on? And he explains to her what's happening. And, and she says, child, get back there and get that water, and don't you come back to this house until you have a bucket filled with water. And don't be worried about that gator. He's just as scared of you as you are of him. And he said, Aunt Hattie Mae, if that gator's as scared as I, of me as I am of him, that water ain't fit to drink no more. You know? There are legitimate reasons to be afraid. Fear can be good sometimes. But fear overdone keeps us from being bold, keeps us from experiencing life, keeps us from living the way God would want us to live. I, I, military, they, they go into battle zones, and they're taught to be fearful, to be cautious, to be careful, to be hyper-vigilant of the dangers that may be around. But when they return to the States, if they can't let go of that, it develops into PTSD, and that hypervigilance continues in a safe society, and they can't find peace in the midst of that. You remember uh, the original, uh, the first Gulf War, and Saddam Hussein's launching Scud missiles over into Israel? You've heard this stat before. Um, more people were killed from fear of the Scud missiles than were actually killed from the missiles themselves. In fact, the first day that he launched missiles into Israel, there was a spike in the death rate of the nation, a 58% increase in the death rate. But no one was hit by a missile. People just died from the anxiety and the stress of the moment. That's what unhealthy fear can do to us. It can cripple us, kill us, stop us. And because we are so afraid of the things of this world, the truth be told, many of us could live life without prayer and without God inter even intervening. You know, many of the things that we worry about could be fixed if we just took some precautions. If we just ate better and exercised more, many of our ailments, not all of them, but many of our ailments would go away. We wouldn't need to call and ask for God's help, you know, with our health. If we just paid attention to folks like Dave Ramsey and stayed out of debt and uh, had proper insurance and, and lived within our means and saved uh, an emergency fund and, and invested for the future, most of our money worries would be taken away. We don't need God for all of that if we live within fear like that because we can do it on our own as long as we're safe and comfortable. But God did not intend for us to live our lives afraid of the world. He called for us to live boldly, to live the adventure that comes from following Him. I love what uh, one guy, Hunter Thompson, not necessarily a, a Christian guy, but here's what he had to say about living life. 
Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside on a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow! That's the way, if we're Christ followers, we ought to be living life. It ought to be an adventure. It ought to be filled with excitement. It ought to be filled with worldly danger. Because it's only then that we truly depend on Christ. See, here's the problem with many Christians. Instead of accepting Jesus' invitation to follow Him, what we've done is we've offered Him an invitation to follow us. Jesus, you, you, you follow me where I'm going to go. I'm going to stay in control. I'm going to dictate where this ship goes, where my life goes, the turns I'm going to make, the things I'm going to do. And you just be there to keep me safe and comfortable and secure and prosperous. But Jesus doesn't, have, doesn't want any part of that. Jesus wants to lead. And where he leads, he leads boldly. But most of us don't really want to follow him in that way because to follow him might mean that we have to get out of our comfort zone and live a little dangerously. Dr. David Livingston, some of you may recognize his name, he was a a, a world-renowned missionary and explorer of the continent of Africa in the early 1800s. In fact, he he explored and charted much of Africa for the Western world, Um, but he started there as as a missionary and, and he was a bold and daring man, uh, nearly losing his life multiple times to disease, once almost being mauled to death by a lion. Um, he endured a lot for the sake of Christ. He spent the entire decade of the 1840s and only had one single convert. I mean, it was that kind of hard work. He ended up being much more influential throughout his life. But one time, the the missionary society that was supporting him wrote to him, and they wanted to send him some help, some folks to to help support in the missionary effort. They, They wrote, Dear Dr. Livingston, we are prepared to send men to help you in your efforts among the peoples of Africa. Is there a good road where you are on which we might send them? He wrote back, If you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Sometimes Jesus calls us to blaze trails where there's no trails to go. He calls us to blaze a new trail and be bold in following him. One of the guys that did go over there and spend some time with him in the missionary efforts, another doctor, Dr. John Kirk, uh, said this about Livingston. He said, I can come to no other conclusion than that Dr. Livingston is out of his mind and is a most unsafe leader. That's what it takes sometimes. When he died eventually at age 59, um, they wanted to give him a burial at Westminster Abbey with honors. They needed to get his body from Africa back to England, but the Africans didn't want to let him go. They wanted to keep his body. So they had to do a little negotiation with them. And eventually they said, okay, here's what we'll do. They sent the body back, but before they sent it back, they literally cut out his heart to keep it. And what they said was, you can have his body, but his heart stays in Africa. Where is your heart? 
when you come, when it comes time for your death, what will people say about where your heart is focused at? I remember uh, one, of the, one of the first funerals I ever did. You know, you sit down with the family, and this was somebody that I had not ever met. I was just doing it as a favor to the, to the funeral home, that kind of thing. You know, they didn't have a church home. So I'm meeting this family for the first time, and I'm talking to them. You know, so, so tell me something to say about the, the, the guy who died and all this. And, you know, they're talking. And one of the things they say is, hey, can we, can we not do that spray, you know, that spray of flowers that goes over the top of a casket? And I was like, well, I guess, you know, it's your fu- his funeral. If you want to do it, you sure. What, what are you going to do instead? So, well, what we'd like to do is we'd like to put a six-pack on top of the casket. Because old Charlie, he loved to drink, man. That was him. And they just went on and on telling me about how he loved to drink his beer. Now, is that what you want to be remembered for? No, of course not. You want to be known as someone who is bold and brave and daring, a hero. Christine Kane, um, someone you may not recognize her name, um, she currently is probably the single leading the most well-known voice that speaks out against human sex trafficking that there is. And she comes from Australia, and in her early years, she experienced that in her life. And so later in her life, as she became a Christian, she became an advocate for against it, a proponent of it, I guess. And she speaks out clearly about it. Well, one time she's on a missionary trip to Africa, and after the trip, they do the obligatory safari, and they're going through, and they're looking at all the animals, and she's just captivated by the lions, their ferociousness, their fierceness, the, the terror that they strike. She's just amazed by that, and, and so when she comes home, she talks about that. Well, about a month after returning home, she and her family end up at the zoo in Sydney, and they're going through, and they come to the African exhibit, and there she sees the lions in their cages. Still pretty big and ferocious, but not fierce like she had seen in the wild. And so she says that she turned to her husband and she said, You know, this is exactly what the church is like. We have saved, we get saved, and then we get caged by religiosity. We get caged by tradition and culture, and we lose our whole personality. And then we get tamed and we get domesticated and we think the goal of our Christianity is just to be nice. Oh, she's so sweet. She's so nice. It's as if Jesus Christ came to earth from heaven, died on a cross, rose from the dead to make me nice. Gag me with a spoon, she says. (laughs) Christ didn't come to make us nice. He came to make us bold and fierce and daring to make a difference and to leave an impact on this world. When Paul was writing to young, timid Timothy, he said this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. God wants us to live with that kind of boldness. He's given us a spirit to enable us to do that. But too often we're afraid But we're afraid of the wrong things. We're afraid of the things of this world, what someone may say, what someone may do, the hardship we may endure. We worry about it and we're filled with anxiety. So what we do, we become caged and crippled Christians. Rather than living the life that God has poured into us through His Spirit. You remember the story of 
uh, Israel escaping from Egyptian bondage, Moses leading the way, God leading the way. They go to Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, they see the might and force and glory of God on the mountain trembling, they see the deliverance that God has given to them throughout the, the plagues and all of that and the deliverance throughout the wilderness, and they come eventually to the edge of the promised land, a land filled with pagan people who've turned their back on God, and God has, has tried to convert them, but he's given up on them because they have turned on him. So he's going to use the Israelites to bring judgment on them and then to give Israel the promised land, a land that would be described as flowing with milk and honey, this wonderful land. But what does Israel do? They send out 12 spies to check out the land to see what it's like to bring back a report. And you know the story. Ten of the spies come back terrified. Oh, sure, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants there. There are cities with big walls. There are chariots there. We can't beat them. We can't win. We've got to go back to where we came from. But Joshua and Caleb, the two exceptions, stand up and say, no, that's not right. Don't you remember what God has done for us, how he's brought us here? We can win. And here's what they say in Numbers chapter 14. It's Joshua and Caleb speaking to all the people who are afraid of what they see in the world. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Now, it took me a while to figure out what he was mean by that. They are bred for us. What, is, what does that mean? I went and read the message paraphrase of it and it says, we're going to eat them for lunch. We're going to have them for lunch is what it says. And that, so that's what he's saying. That's what Joshua and Caleb are saying. We're going to make a bologna sandwich out of these guys. It's going to be a piece of cake. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, you would think maybe that would motivate them to be reminded of all of that and, and encourage them to move forward. But you know what the people of Israel started to do to Joshua and Caleb in that moment? They picked up stones to stone them to death. And they would have done it except the glory of God, literally the shining brightness of God, descended upon the tabernacle at that moment and began to radiate brightly. And the people backed away. And then God turns to Moses and Aaron and he says this to them. How long will this people despise me? Now, wait a second. To live in fear is to despise God. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and I'll disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God was just going to start all over. So get that. When we live in fear and trembling of the world, it is as if... In God's eyes, we despise him. We don't trust him. We don't believe in him. That's how strongly God feels when we are gripped with anxiety by the things of this world. Notice again what Joshua and Caleb had said, the comparisons and contrasts they make. Don't rebel against the Lord and don't live in fear. So to, to live in fear is actually to rebel against God. That's pretty strong words. The Lord is with us, so don't fear. To, to live in fear is to acknowledge or to believe or to act like 
God isn't even with you. This God that we just sang about and worshiped about and praised and stand and stood and rose hands to, think of how glorious and mighty he is. But when we live in fear, when we don't act in boldness, it's as if we don't believe a thing we just said or sang. The fear of the world is to rebel against God. So here's key point number one. The presence of worldly fear shows the absence of godly faith. For God, it's that black and white. You see this in the life of Jesus. You remember the time that um, um, he had uh, gotten in the boat with his disciples and they set across the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he falls asleep because he's so tired and a storm begins to rage and the disciples see the wind and the waves and they get terrified. They wake up Jesus and it's like it's almost like they wake him up from a deep sleep and you've been woken up from a deep sleep and, you know, and you're kind of grouchy when you first wake up. It's like he's just a little bit grouchy when they wake him up because it's, he stands up in the boat and he yells, Peace! Be still! To the wind and waves and they just die down. And then he turns to the disciples and he says this, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You see, if we're filled with fear, there is no room for faith in our lives. But get this, notice this quick change here. This is key. What happens to the disciples? And so they were filled with great fear. The word there is mega fear, you know, megatron, megaphone, mega fear, great fear. And they said to one another, are they, are they afraid of the wind and waves anymore? No, they say to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Suddenly, they weren't so much afraid of the winds and the waves. They were afraid of the almighty God. They knew something was different about this man, and they were filled with great fear. So therein maybe lies a clue for us. Sometimes fear can be good. So point number two, to overcome worldly fear, we must embrace godly, holy fear. I think something has happened in the church in the last generation or so. I think we've begun to fear the world more than we fear the Lord. In fact, to even use the language to fear the Lord kind of rubs us the wrong way. We saw this language last week when we saw Solomon, when he said the whole duty and purpose of man, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You know, it wasn't a generation ago that one of the greatest compliments you could give to someone was to say, there goes a God-fearing man. There goes a God-fearing woman. It was meant as a compliment to acknowledge the greatness and vastness and supremacy and power of our Lord and to recognize that no matter how big our problems are, God is bigger. We've sung this for a long time. You know the song Amazing Grace? It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. It was grace that showed me how great and mighty and wondrous God is. And it was grace that showed me I don't have anything in this world to really worry about. Oswald Chambers said it this way, you fear God? Well, then you fear nothing else at all. 
But if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And that's how so many of us live. And I know it's kind of counterintuitive to say, fear God. Because God is loving, he's caring, but he's also holy and majestic and powerful. And so we are to fear him. And the Bible is filled with blessings that come to those who fear the Lord. Here are just a few. Psalm 211 talks about the joy we can have from fearing the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling? Absolutely, when we realize how powerful God is. Psalm 3119 reminds us of the protection that comes from the fierceness of God. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. So it is counterintuitive. We fear God. You'd think we'd run away from him because he would terrify us. But instead, what the psalmist is reminding us, our God is so fearsome that we can run to him and be protected. Proverbs 22.4 says this, True humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. To fear the Lord brings blessings to us. Acts 9, chapter, 31, chapter 9, verse 31, reminds us that there's encouragement, strength, and rejoicing in the fear of the Lord. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I can't help but think that one of the reasons that the modern American church seems so decimated and decapitated is because we've stopped fearing the Lord, and we've feared the world more. We've stopped acting boldly the way God calls us to when He fills us with His Spirit because we're worried what the world will think. But God says, if you will act boldly in my name, and I don't mean stupidly and be arrogant and say dumb things to people, I mean acting with bold love and bold courage, bold grace, in this world, the world might look at the church a little differently. John Ortberg says it this way. Fear, fear of the world whispers to us that God is not really big enough to take care of us. It tells us we're not really safe in his hands. It causes us to distort the way we think about him. Fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has. For it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. (laughs) That's why we need those daily times with the Lord. The time where we put aside the things of the world and we focus on His greatness each and every day to be reminded of His deliverance in the past, to be reminded of His answered prayers in our own lives, to be reminded of how great He is. It's why we come to church each week on Sunday morning and why we shouldn't forsake the assembly, as some translations say. Yes, we love to come together and slap each other on the back and talk about the Cowboys should have made the playoffs more and all that kind of stuff. We love doing that and socializing. But really what this is about is about us living out in the world boldly and on the edge and dangerously and blazing new trails 
And then coming here to be encouraged and uplifted and reminded of how great and powerful and magnificent our God is. Because it's when we remind each other, you know, God answered my prayers this week. God did this great thing in this person's life this week. Oh, and we sing praises and glory to Him to be reminded of how He is the creator and sustainer and redeemer of this world and He is here for us. We can go back out and blaze new trails again. That's what coming together in church does. Mike Iaconelli, who founded... um, youth specialties, uh, uh, kind of a youth ministry uh, resource, years ago said this. The tragedy of modern faith is that we no longer are capable of being terrified. We aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. And we aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we have ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands but transforms no one. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. A place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or a doctrine or a theology, but it is God's burning presence in our lives. I'm suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust and strips us naked to reveal the person within The church needs to become gloriously dangerous, a glorious, dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Because our God loves us. He's fierce and he's awesome, but he loves us. He's dangerous, but he loves us. You remember when Jesus sent out the disciples to go evangelize? Preach the word. They came back with great stories, but there was also struggles. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And God wants us to go boldly because he is a ferocious lion. He is calling on us to be bold and daring and unafraid of the things that we face out there. And when the church in Acts faced hardships and difficulties, they came together to pray, but not for safety, not for comfort, not for protection from their enemies. They prayed for boldness. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. Many miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word of God with boldness. Maybe the reason God doesn't shake the churches anymore It's because we're not really living as bold as we should. So where do you start? How do you start being bold? We don't have to go to Africa to be bold. We don't have to become a missionary that travels halfway around the world to be daring. We start right where we're at. Boldness begins where you are. 
So is your marriage not what it should be? Maybe you should be bold enough to have that conversation you've been too afraid to have. Are you a mom and dad? Maybe you should be bold enough to be the kind of mom and dad that points out to your children the greatness and the wonder of our God. Is your, you're unsure about your job, uncertain about what to do? Be bold and speak the truth, but do it in love. You know, a lot of times, and in this series, it's even kind of stirred folks up, said, well, how do I know if, it, what God's will is? A lot of times people are asking that. How do I know if God wants me to keep this job or, or go to this job or move to this town? What do I need to do? How do I know? I'm, I'm so confused. Well, listen, if God wants you to do something, if he wants you to make a change like that, he's going to make it abundantly clear. Don't worry about that. God's powerful enough to communicate to you exactly what he wants if we're tuned in and listening. Most of the time, though, God isn't concerned whether you change jobs or move to a different city. What he's concerned with is, are you bold? Are you following me? Are you being obedient right where you're at? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for Lighthouse because I think it is a church with some boldness in it. Because of Pastor Frank and, and his boldness, he's led us in such a way. We're not afraid to, to try different things. We don't let our, our customs and traditions and our comforts get in our way when we're called to do something bold. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, but I want to be a part of a church that at least tries. You know, and I, I think about Revive here a couple of years ago. Man, what a wonderful, exciting thing. Go and preach the word to people. You know, and, and, and we went hook, line, and sinker and jumped into it. And, you know, I, maybe it had just had mixed results. The crowds didn't come like we thought they were. It wasn't as successful in the world standards as we thought it was. But I can't help but wonder, when we get to heaven, who will be there to say thank you for being bold that year that you did revive? Because I'm here because of what you did. You see, God may see things differently than we do. So I'm thankful that we're part of a church like that, that's willing to try new things no matter what it's like. What happened? You remember Benaiah, the guy that we're studying for this series, the Old Testament character? You know, he ended up being the uh, leader of the Israeli army under Solomon. But he didn't start out there. He was bold along the way when he fought the, the lion-like men of Moab, when he fought the Egyptian with the spear, when he fought the lion in the pit on a snowy day. He was bold wherever he was at, and that's what God is calling us to do, is to be bold wherever we're at. We don't have to be a missionary in a far-off land, but we have to be a missionary right where God has planted us. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the one-way missionaries. They were called one-way missionaries because they focused on the most difficult areas of the world to take the gospel to, you know, uh, headhunter-type areas. And... Um, what they would do is, before they would send a missionary off, they would come and that missionary would place all of his and her earthly belongings in a coffin and they would bury that coffin on the church grounds. And then they would buy a one-way ticket to wherever they were going because they knew the chances of them coming back were very slim. A.L. Milne was one such missionary and he was sent 
to, new, to the New Hebrides Islands, a place filled with headhunters. And he buried his belongings and he bought his ticket and he went, knowing that he would never come back to his home. Now, he died over there, but he didn't die because the headhunters killed him. He ended up being successful over there, breaking through to them. And when he did die of his old age, the natives buried him and put a tombstone up for him. And what they engraved on the tombstone is what I hope that people would say about us. They engraved on his tombstone, they said, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Wherever you're at, bring the light. Eradicate the darkness. Be bold. Because that's what God has called you to. Because lion chasers risk boldly. Because we follow a bold God. So would you stand? And is our custom in this series, let's end with these words of blessing on your life. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-given passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Stop pointing out problems and become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past and start creating the future. Face your fears. Fight for your dreams. Grab opportunity by the main and don't let go. Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. Don't try to be who you're not. Be yourself. Laugh at yourself. Dare to dream God-sized dreams. Dare to be different. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Quit running away. Chase the lion. So as we continue to stand, we're going to sing, and it is a time for you to commit to God, to boldness, to living victoriously. If that means coming forward and kneeling at the altar is wonderful. If it means standing right where you're at, but do it. Call out to God, the God who is so fierce that he strikes terror into our hearts, but know that you can call out to him and run to him and be safe because he has called you to blaze new trails. Be the person that God has called you to be. Be the lion chaser. Let's sing.